before the service, I was walking around the campus um, because tomorrow, um, probably 800 some odd critters will be running around this campus as school starts. And for 42 years, I was on this campus and it was a joy to be able to teach here and having a couple students seated out there that I had, by the way, a little older, but um, it's a joy to think uh, of them coming. Years ago, when I taught in 112, which is a room down the hall down that way, a little seventh grader came up to me, because I taught the seventh and the twelfth, I call them the bookends at the school. Um, little seventh grader, beginning of the school, came up with his Bible that was bigger than he, and held it up and looked up at me with those big eyes and said, how does this work? Now here's a kid who could tell me everything I didn't know about this, but how does this work? Well, probably one of the most helpful ways to explain how this works is to reveal the outline first of what I call the meta-narrative of the Bible. This will set the context for us this morning at Luke 7. You always begin, of course, with creation in the meta-narrative, that God created everything. It was good. The crown of man's or God's creation was man, made in his image, created in order to enjoy the creator's fellowship and love, to see his majesty and character, to spontaneously and joyously worship him, and to spread the dominion over the earth as God's agent. That was the joy and the privilege of man when he was created. But it didn't last long. The fall. Man turns his back on God, thinks he becomes the moral authority in his life, is estranged by God, and the earth is cursed to accommodate man's death. And that is the reason why we have such pain and agony in the world today, whether it's disease or decay or death or fires in California, earthquakes, all of that is a result of the curse on man as he turned his back on God. But as soon as you hit the fall in Genesis 3, you quickly see the solution, and that's the good news. In Genesis 3, gives the fall. But in Genesis 3.15 is a cryptic verse that some of you are familiar with that tells us that one will come from a woman, which is quite general since most of us come from a woman, um, and he will be a snake crusher. What I mean by that is he will destroy Satan. That's rather general. Down the line, one will come. Begins general. Then we get to Genesis 12. And it says, this one will come through the line of Abraham, through his nation, Israel. So it narrows down from a woman to a nation. And then you get to 1 Samuel 7, Jeremiah 23, and we discover it comes through the family of David. So it starts very general, begins narrowing down more specifically who this one is, and that it will come specifically from the line of David. He will be a king like David, but he'll be a suffering king to redeem man, and he will be a reigning king who will restore this 
earth to what it originally was. Luke 1, as we come closer down to our passage this morning, Luke 7, in Luke 1, Gabriel announces to Mary that her son is that one, is that future Davidic king. He has arrived. That had to be incredible news to her. Then in Luke 2, Simeon at the temple announces that this child, Mary's child, will bring light to the Gentiles and glory to Israel. Then in Luke 6, Jesus began teaching what we call the Sermon on the Plains. Now, I know you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Plains is very similar to that. And he tells the blessings of the kingdom. And then he ends his message with this. Build your foundation upon me. And then we come to our passage this morning, Luke 7. Why should we build our foundation of our life on him? And he begins to explain it. Now I'm going to sneak over to the end of Luke 7 just for a second because we're not going to hit that this morning. But we run into John the Baptist. And John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus that ask a very odd question. Are you the expected one? Now let me step out of the sermon just for a second for those that were in the apologetic series. This is what is known as a criteria embarrassment. If you were fabricating the gospel, you would not put this in here. You would not put the forerunner of Christ, the one who was going to announce the Messiah, having that question, having doubts that Jesus is indeed the expected one. It adds actually credibility to the gospel because if you're fabricating it, you don't put something like that in there. Now the problem is Jewish the Jews at that time expected a conquering Messiah. They expected, as John did, fiery judgment. The problem here is there must be a suffering Messiah before there's a reigning Messiah. There must be redemption of the soul before there's the consummation of the kingdom. And this is foreshadowed in all of the Old Testament sacrificial system and also predicted in Isaiah 53. So to John the Baptist's messengers, he quotes part of Isaiah 35. This is what Jesus said. The Messiah must first cure the blind, restore the lame, heal the deaf, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, and preach to the needy. Now go, tell John the Baptist, I am doing that. In other words, fulfilling what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Now just between you and me, it's interesting what Jesus did not quote in Isaiah 35. Let me read it to you. The scorched land will become a pool. The thirsty ground, spring water. No lion will be there, but the redeemed will walk there. The ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Why didn't Jesus quote that? Because that will occur in his second advent, not his first coming, his second coming. Now John expected fiery judgment and the restoration of justice in Israel and peace in Israel. That is what will occur 
and his second coming. Simply put, John was unaware of the two advents. In Jesus' first advent, the object of his divine reign would be man's redemption. We just sang about that. The man would, man would be delivered from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of God. In Jesus' second advent, the object of his divine reign would be the destruction of anything hostile to God. And this is what John was expecting. Indeed, the rebels will be judged. Satan and his accomplices will be thrown into hell. And the cursed earth will be restored so there will be no longer decay, death, sorrow, and pain. Expression in the Synoptic Gospels that's often used is the kingdom of God. In fact, that is Jesus' message. The kingdom of God. It talks about the redemption of man. John uses the term eternal life. Paul uses the term salvation. I like the expression the kingdom of God because it tends to be a little broader in its scope. It includes Jesus' invisible reign manifested in a man's heart we call regeneration. And it also involves Jesus' physical reign manifested when Jesus Christ returns. And we look forward to that. Now we can zoom in on Luke 7, where it describes two episodes in the life of the Messiah Redeemer. These episodes will both clarify his identity, demonstrate his power, reveal his heart, and foreshadow his redemptive work. When we finish with Luke, my greatest prayer is that you'll be asking, who else do I want to follow but the one who heals the sick, raises the dead, and loves the needy? After Jesus had completed the Sermon on the Plains, he returned to Capernaum. His headquarters is in Galilee, and Capernaum is an important city on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. A centurion, which as you know is a Roman officer, over 100 men, was stationed in the city. Now it's not until about 40 years later that a large contingency of Roman soldiers would be in Israel, but he was there with those soldiers probably to assist or protect Herod Antipas. This local centurion had a slave that he highly esteemed. In other words, his servant had become very dear to his heart. And in fact, in Luke 7, 7, the word servant can also be translated child or son. That's how close this Roman centurion thought of his servant. But we got a problem. The servant is ill, very ill, near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent a group of respected Jews to him. He believed Jesus could heal his servant. The delegation spoke very highly of the centurion. I wondered in reading this, did they worry that Jesus might not respond to a Gentile? So they tell Jesus that this centurion loves our nation. He desires the best for us. He even built us a synagogue which suggests either the Romans paid for it or he paid for it himself. He was a God-fearing man, which means he put away polytheism. 
the centurion was being quite sensitive to Jesus, I believe, in sending the delegation to Jesus because he knew that in first century, it was the belief of the Jews that if you entered a Gentile's house, you were considered defiled. So he sends a delegation to Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus, though, begins walking to the centurion's house as soon as he hears the request. Now, I want you to picture this morning Andrew and Peter in this episode. And you're probably thinking Andrew and Peter were never mentioned in that chapter. I realize that. But the disciples are with Jesus, bumping into him constantly. Okay. And this is a true story. In fact, the largest part of genre in Scripture is narrative. Uh, unfortunately, the best way to diminish a biblical narrative is to read it in the third person. I want you to be there, and we're going to see it through the eyeballs of Andrew and Peter. Now, the purpose of a story is to be there, to be part of the action, to observe firsthand, to be amazed, to be moved, to be awed. That's what a story is about. Years ago, while I was teaching, before these things existed, when some students got done with an exam, some, not all, would take out a novel and read. Because you always have students that finish, you know, in 15 minutes and others take, you know, three and a half hours. Um, and some of those students had gotten done so fast would whip out a novel. It was fun to watch their faces. It was like this. I think an M80 would go off and they wouldn't notice. Do you remember the old days, and I'm going to date myself, where you invite friends over to your house, you'd rent one of those video cassettes or videotape things. Uh, some of you don't even know what that is. But anyway, <laughs> you rent it, and you have friends come over, and you played the movie, and everybody was into it. You, and you remember get, getting up and going to the kitchen and then coming back and looking at your friend's face, and it was like this? As they stare at the TV. And some of them may be even talking. No, 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 oh, some tears in the eye. Oh, my um, The movie was doing what it was supposed to do. Draw them in that they are in the story. That's what a narrative is for. That's why God gave us narrative to be there and not read it in the third, whoops, sorry, sir, third person. Regretfully, Christians have come to biblical narrative with the mentality that the Bible is an encyclopedia of moral living. That's called Confucianism. Do you watch a movie that way? Do you go on a date that way? Well, I mean, if you're not married. Um, do you go on a date that way and come back and say, hmm, what were the propositional truths I learned today? How can I apply that in my life? Snap out of it. Get counseling if you're doing that. <laughs> Narratives are first to be experienced, and then they can be parsed. Possibly Bible teachers, pastors, theologians have become the great morticians that have killed the joy of narratives. We analyze it too quickly, we flatten it out and make it a propositional truth, and we apply it too mechanically. Thus, we miss the awe, the wonder, the excitement watching the Creator Redeemer walk among His people. 
I know this may sound like I'm shooting myself in the foot because for 28 year, years I have taught biblical interpretation to college students at the Master's University and will start up in a couple weeks. But what I'm saying this morning is before you begin to rip it apart, just be there. Feel the hot sun of Palestine. Smell the passing donkeys. Oh, whoa, what was that? Watch the millstone crush the olives. Observe the mason placing the cornerstone on a brand new building. Become seasick while you're on one of those small boats in the Sea of Galilee. Oh, do you have those patches for that you're behind the ear? Dodge the chaff that's flying because the, the farmer's winnowing as wheat. Gird your loins up so you don't trip over your robe, dress, whatever that is. Taste that newly baked barley bread. Oh, that was good. Now, with that in mind, let's look this morning at two episodes through the eyes, have I said before, Andrew and Peter. Now, Matthew abbreviates the story as if the centurion is talking directly to Jesus and not through the delegation. Let's be Andrew. Peter, what? Doesn't that man work for Rome? Yes. Peter, what? Isn't he a Gentile? Yes, he's a Gentile. Psst. Oh. <laughs> yes. Isn't he unclean? Yes, he's unclean. Oh. Bro. Oh. What? Do you like Gentiles? No. Jesus does. Jesus does. Doesn't that sound like brothers? Even though Jesus goes on to heal the local servant, or the, the Roman centurion servant, and even though Jesus will send the disciples out to the Gentiles in the Great Commission, Peter still has problems with Gentiles. This is why in Luke, or excuse me, Acts 10, the Lord has to deliver to Peter a very strange vision. Excuse my expression, but it's in a sense to kick him in the butt saying, hey, my gospel is to go to all the world. Finally, Peter catches on about Gentiles, and he makes this confession in Acts 10. I must certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The light goes on, but not for long. Because you read in Galatians 2, which is about 20 years later, Paul rebuking Peter for disassociating with Gentiles. So Peter has a problem. It's interesting to watch Peter as Jesus talks with the centurion. So Jesus approached the centurion's house. A second delegation of officers come out. Those the centurion had a great reputation in the area, though he was respected by all, and though the Jews thought he was quite worthy of Jesus' help, the centurion felt differently. The centurion felt unworthy of Jesus' presence in his house. As I stated 
earlier, it possibly was because the centurion out of respect did not want Jesus to come in for fear that Jesus would be declared defiled. But it's more than that. The centurion himself felt unworthy to approach Jesus. He knew Jesus was on a different level. The centurion was undeserving, unsuitable, unfit to be, in a sense, the presence of Jesus. When we did apologetics, I quoted Napoleon Bonaparte. And let me quote him again, because he understands also Jesus was in a different category. Napoleon said this, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself founded great empires upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love. I tell you, all these were men. None is like him. Jesus Christ was more than man. He asked for the human heart. He demands it unconditionally and forthwith his demand is granted. Even Napoleon understood Christ was at a different level than anyone else. So speaking through the delegation, the centurion said, just say the word and my servant will be healed. You don't have to come to my house. Just say the word and he'll be healed. He went on to give an example as if Jesus needed an illustration to understand, but he did. He goes, I'm an officer. If I say to my soldiers, bark, they say, how loud? If I say, jump, they say, how high? You are the master of the universe. When you speak, nature listens. Watch Jesus' response to this centurion's confidence. Oh. Scripture records, now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. Only two times in Scripture does it ever say Jesus marveled. One at the unbelief of the people who lived in Nazareth and the belief of this centurion. Jesus proclaimed, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. In this passage, you see the humility, excuse me, you see the humanity of Christ. God cannot be surprised, but, but Jesus in his human nature was astonished. The same Greek word used in the disciples' response to Jesus' ability to calm the storm is the exact same word Jesus, that's used of Jesus' response to this man's incredible humility and trust. At first, I thought in reading these 10 verses, the whole focus was on the centurion and his character. And the longer I stared and read and reread this passage, I realized, no, the focus is on Christ. The centurion didn't have faith in faith. He had faith in Christ. He trusted Jesus because the Lord had authority over nature, disease, demons, and death. Let me be blunt. Faith cannot transform. Faith cannot change a soul. Christ redeems. Christ forgives. Christ adopts. Christ saves. Faith is simply the hand that goes out and receives that grace. You see, all people have faith. 
What's important is what you put your faith in. What is the object of your faith? There's a Christian worker who went to a circus and was passing out Bibles. And he was able to share the gospel with one performer. When he got done, this performer said this, I do not think I have enough faith to entrust my soul to Jesus. Now what was shocking about this is that every day this performer placed her head into the mouth of an elephant and that elephant would go around in a circle. She had faith in the elephant but didn't have faith in the God who made the elephant. How bizarre is that? So in Luke 7, you quickly realize the definition of genuine biblical faith. It involves knowledge about the Lord, humility toward the Lord, dependence upon the Lord, and confidence in the Lord. It is all about the Lord. A number of years ago, there was an old older lady, since I'm getting old, I have to be careful on this, um, an older lady um, who wanted to visit her daughter in Cleveland. She lived in Buffalo. So she got on a ship, and soon after she got on the ship, there was a huge storm. It was ugly. And there were a lot of adults that got together and began praying because they were afraid that the, the, the ship would capsize. But not this old lady. She went off by herself and just calmly praised the Lord. When the sea was calm and the danger was over, the people came to her, these adults, and go, whoa, whoa, explain how you could have peace in the midst of facing death. She said, oh, it's like this. I have two daughters. One has gone to be with the Lord, and the other one lives in Cleveland. When our lives were threatened, I honestly wondered which daughter would I meet first, the one in Cleveland or the one in heaven. I would have rejoiced either way. Both the Roman centurion and the old lady had remarkable faith in the Lord who had authority over nature, disease, and death. Several weeks ago, I had the the joy and the privilege to be able to go to the Arctic. Um, there's an expedition ship and there's 68 people on it and um, able to, to stand on the Arctic pack ice and see polar bears and Arctic foxes and if you're into birds, puffins and reindeer and blue whales. It was remarkable. Um, But before I left, there was something in the news that caught my attention, but I have to explain to you, when I travel, I don't take this thing. I'm probably, probably one, just probably two people in the world that probably don't travel with something like this. The other person's dead. Um, <laughs> I don't take iPhones, iPads, laptops with me. The reason is because when I travel, I just like to see the handiwork of God. I, I just... Wow, I don't want to go, whoa, whoa, did you see that? Um, I don't want to worry about it. Um, 
But there was one thing in the news that I, I wanted to continue to know about. It wasn't about Russia, it wasn't about North Korea, it wasn't the NATO conference, it wasn't the nation's tariff, blah, 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 blah. What did I want to know about? It was 12 boys and their soccer coach who were trapped in a cave in Chiang Rai in northern Thailand. The story absolutely gripped my heart. And I think any parent would be gripped by this story. And being a teacher and teaching this school for four decades and taught this grade level of these kids that were trapped in the flooded cave, it just gripped my heart. Adding to that, I'd, I'd been to Chiang Rai and I'd met the people. Um, some of the citizens there, they are the warmest people. I've never seen people smile as fast as these people. You just start to smile and boop, and they smile. I'm going, whoa, 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 okay. <laughs> um, they are remarkable. And while I was at LAX waiting for my flight, eight of the 12 boys had been successfully rescued. And of course, I wanted to know about the other four. Here were 12 boys ages 11 to 16, you know the story, and a coach trapped a mile and a half inside one of the largest caves in uh, Thailand. The problem was immense. The oxygen level in the cave was a degraded state. The monsoons were starting. Much of the cave was submerged. The water was murky. The boys had never used any scuba gear. In fact, they didn't know how to swim. And as you recall, one professional diver carrying three oxygen tanks drowned when the mouth, mouthpiece and mask came off. A U.S. tactic officer on 2020 said that many experts thought that they could successfully rescue 60 to 70, 60 to 70 percent of the boys. They didn't expect to get all of them out alive. When I landed in Oslo, I was told that the remaining boys and their coach were safely recovered. You know, it's a joy to my heart. Why do I share that with you this morning? Because of one statement made by a professional cave diver. Before the boys were ever ex extracted, this man said on TV this comment. 90% of the success of the rescue depends upon the boys' trust in the divers. Would they place their confidence in the rescuers? Would they follow their instructions? Would they trust their ability and knowledge? And would they be at peace with these strangers? When I heard this, I thought of the centurion who had 100% confidence that the Lord could heal his servant. What is interesting to me is that the Roman centurion had everything going against him. What do I mean by that? He's a Gentile, which means he has limited knowledge. Two, he's powerful, which tempts people to rely upon themselves. And three, he's wealthy. And you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. But suffering has a way of humbling a person. While hardship to some people causes bitterness, to others it softens them and opens them up.
Can you picture Andrew and Peter after this? Peter! What? Does this mean he has greater faith than me? Yes. And he has greater faith than me also. Peter! Uh-huh. This means we need to listen more, ponder more, and trust more our master. Exactly, Andrew. I think it's time to go. I think our Lord is heading to the city of Nain. It's a day's journey, the city of Nain. It's 25 miles west of Capernaum and five miles south of Nazareth. The word Nain actually means delightful or pleasant. But this is not the case this particular day. Of course, Andrew and Peter are falling close behind. Peter, yes, what's all the commotion about? It's a funeral. Keep your voice down. Well, what's the story? All I know is a widow lost her only son. Oh. Humanly speaking, it appears Jesus is late again. He was late to Jairus' daughter by a few minutes. He was late to the widow's son by a few hours. He was late to Martha's brother by a few days. Interestingly, though, in all three cases, the people saw the glory of God, experienced his presence, and sorrow turned into joy, and they glorified his name. In this scene, a young man has just died. Now, in Palestine, in those days when one died, you buried the person that day. Two reasons. One, decomposition. Just like in Southern California, today is going to be warm. There's about four places in the world that have what is known as Mediterranean climate. We're one of them, of course. And in the Mediterranean, as you know, it's warm. So the body decomposes quite rapidly. So that's number one. Two, defilement. The longer the body is above ground, the potential of ceremonially defiling a person is greater. So normally what they would do when someone died is wash the body and then wrap it up in with... Uh, linen wrap, and then carry the body on a plank to the cemetery. Parents would normally rend their clothes. Now, when I was little and reading the Bible, I couldn't understand why these Jewish people are always ripping their clothes. What is with these people? And they must be wealthy. Now, I pictured in my mind that they just ripped like this when they became sorrowful. And I'm going, whoa. Now, that reminded me, it's going to sound weird, like Superman, because when I was growing up, Superman, which I watched in black and white color, black and white color, that's weird, black and white, uh, Superman would go in the telephone booth and Clark Kent would rip his clothes, sorry, sir. Um, and, uh, I don't, you know, a strange man that wore his underwear outside blue tights. Um, but he'd always rip his clothes. That's how I pictured when I'd read the Bible that these people were always ripping their clothes. Well, it's not that way. When great sorrow came, or anger, in this case, it would be sorrow. 
if there was a dad, in this case there isn't because the father has uh, died. But the dad would normally rip, it's about the size of a fist over his heart on his tunic. He would allow that rip to be there for a week. Then after that, it would be loosely stitched up. In 30 days, then it would be fully stitched up. Mom would do the same thing, except she would go into the house, rip it over her heart, turn the tunic around so that she would not be immodest. Scripture records, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. This is not a condescending pity. It's a gut-felt sympathy, empathy. Jesus' heart beat next to her heart. He felt what she felt. Years ago, I read, and I, it didn't say where this earthquake took place, but it was a horrible earthquake. The more I read, my guess, and it was only a guess, it sounded like that terrible one about t 10 years ago in China. This earthquake that occurred was in the morning when people were at business, kids were at school. And when it hit, the houses went down like dominoes, you know, when you're, when you're a little kid and you hit dominoes, and so forth. And the houses just did that. But the horrifying part of this earthquake is a school collapsed and almost every child was crushed to death. There was a doctor in the town and he realized he had to get immediately to the hospital, um, leave his house and go directly to ER because he knew uh, the horrible situation and the need for him. One boy, little boy, that had been rescued because he had been crushed, but he didn't die, and they were able to get him to the hospital. And this one particular doctor with a team worked on this boy for seven hours. Can you imagine being the parents waiting in the waiting room? Seven hours. But they couldn't save him. And the... Um, the doctor decided that instead of sending the nurses out to tell the parents about the result, he would go out and tell mom and dad. And when he approached them and told them the bad news, the mother, of course, just broke down into tears and she took her fist and came right up to the doctor and began beating him on the chest like this and he didn't move. He just stood there like this, taking it as his mother cried. And when she got done, he put her arms around her and hugged her and tears came down his face. Little did she know that when he was at home in the morning, news came to him that his only son had been crushed and killed at that same school. He knew exactly what she felt. This is why I love Hebrews 4.14 and following. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Then it gives us a conjunction for, which is an explanation. Why should we hold on to our confession? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted, tried in all things, and yet without sin. Here comes another conjunction. Therefore, as a result, 
let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find help in the time of need. You see, I can't shake my fist at at God and say, you don't know what it's like to lose your only son because my words were turned to ash in my mouth. So Jesus walks right to the body and touches the plank. Probably Andrew's going, oh, Peter, tell him not to touch. He's going to get defiled. Don't, don't, don't touch. Because in Numbers 19, it says, if you touch a dead body or anything associated with a dead body, you would become defiled. But Jesus makes the defiled clean. And out of compassion, Jesus interrupts the funeral and stops the procession. By the way, the word compassion, and I think Sergio mentioned this a couple weeks ago, the word compassion here is used of the Samaritan in the parable of the Good Samaritan and used of the father in the parable of the prodigal son. In other words, as the heart of the Samaritan went out to that badly beaten Jew, as the heart of the father went out to his lost son, so Jesus' heart went out to that desperate and weeping woman. When Jesus stopped the procession, he instructs the people, stop weeping. Is crying normal? Yes. Is it right? Yes. Nothing is wrong with crying. God gave us tears. In fact, Jesus wept bitterly right before he raised Lazarus from the dead. Probably he wept over the ravages of what sin does and destruction of death. But in our passage today, he's concentrating upon the joy that's going to occur. When I was typing some things up for this message, I had on my desk a YouTube on, and it was playing piano music in the background. And the song that was being played on the piano is an old hymn that the old folks in here would probably recognize his eye is on the sparrow. I'm not going to sing it, but I'll tell you some of the words. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely when Jesus is my portion? My constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Indeed, he watches us, and he was watching the widow. So Jesus says, young man, I say to you, arise. It tells us in scripture, the dead man sat up and spoke. I wondered, what is the first thing that comes out of his mouth? It doesn't tell us, but my imagination just, woohoo, just goes with this. What's that? Greetings, hello, feeling good. Why is everybody staring at me? Oh, what am I doing on a funeral plank? Oh. And who are you? One of my favorite verses in this particular episode, which you will probably think is odd unless you're a mother, states this. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. So warm. In this passage, you see incarnate compassion. You see the one who has the force to dry up tears. You see the one whose eye is on the sparrow and all of those who hurt. 
When I read, read verse 15, I stopped and stared out my window and overlooks the Burbank Airport. And I wondered, what did mom and her son talk about that evening? I don't think it was about avocados. I don't think so. Now use your sanctified imagination and picture Andrew and Peter. Peter, uh, our master has power over winds and waves, disease, and now death. Wow. Exactly. But don't miss his heart, Andrew. When we zoom out and watch the crowd's responses to Jesus, it's threefold and it's normal, the response. First reaction, they became fearful. The crowd was absolutely traumatized. You see, dead people don't get up and talk. You don't take a chair to forest lawn, sit down, and wait for people to dig out. Hopefully, you don't do that. Second reaction was glorifying God. This means that they celebrated the reality that God had visited his people. In other words, they rejoiced the fact that God manifested his presence. Third reaction, they proclaimed Jesus as a great prophet. This is very logical, by the way. What Jesus did in Nain, Elijah did in Zarephath, and Elisha did in Chunam, was just the town over the hill from Nain. Both raised a child from the dead in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah resuscitated a widow's son from the dead, and in 2 Kings 4, Elisha resuscitated a boy who had fallen dead on his mother's lap. So it's no surprise later when Jesus said, whom do people say that I am? And the disciples said, some think you're Elijah. It's logical. Elijah is actually predicted in Malachi to return. Our Lord in Deuteronomy 18 foretells of a coming great prophet. So the crowd was correct in their statement, but incomplete in their understanding. As I was wrapping this, this episode up in my own mind and coming to conclusion and jotting notes, notes down, I realized that 10 theologians remarked at the end of their commentaries that this miracle teaches that Jesus is God. I wouldn't disagree with that, but to me, it misses the main point. To me, the, the passage reveals the heart of God. Do you think after this miracle that mom sat down and said to her son, now, this miracle is evidence of Jesus' deity. How should we apply this in our life? I don't think so. I think mom was hugging her son and crying and saying, the man who cared about me raised you from the dead. I see his mercy, his majesty. I want to follow him. I've always appreciated systematic theology. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I counted how many books. I don't know why I did this. I must have been bored. I counted how many books I have in systematic theology, and I have 125 books just on that topic alone. So obviously, I enjoy systematic theology. In fact, I was 
at Coco's this morning reading a book in systematic theology. So obviously, I love it. <laughs> but in my old age, I have come to enjoy and appreciate and love what is known as biblical theology. Systematic theology categorizes profound doctrines. You have Christology and soteriology, that's what I was reading this morning, and then eschatology and angelology and all the ologies. Biblical theology reveals the personal creator through redemptive history and the themes throughout scripture. I'll give you an example of the two. From a biblical theology point, if you read Genesis 1, you walk away seeing the creator's power, personality, creativity, and beauty. You go, wow. Systematic theology reads that through and goes, God is omnipotent. Okay. You see the difference between the two? Now, is anything wrong with systematic theology? No, because I'd have to throw all those books away. No. <laughs> However, biblical theology causes you to walk through the pages of Scripture and see God's heart. Systematic theology takes, a biblical the takes from biblical theology and makes a list. God is holy. God is sovereign. God is merciful. God is just. God is omnipotent. Nothing's wrong with that. But the danger of systematic theology can be can easily become encyclopedic knowledge that misses the personal beauty and his interaction with man. Consequently, when reading a narrative like we did, we need to pause, reflect, and enjoy the majesty of the Lord before we turn it into a propositional truth or lesson. Simply to, to walk away this morning and say, yes, Raising of the widow's son shows you that Jesus is God. Ah, hey, got that one down on my notes. And then you missed it. Indeed, Jesus is God. But the heart of God is what's so crucial. As we move from Luke 7 to the entire New Testament, as we pan out on the cross, out of love, Jesus removes spiritual death upon his second advent that we're looking forward to. Out of love, he will destroy physical death. You do realize, don't you, that the centurion eventually died, that the centurion's servant who was healed eventually died, that the widow passed away, that the widow's son eventually passed away. You and I know the passing of loved ones brings tears. Yet for Christians, there is a joy. Why? Because we look forward to being with him. We look forward to when the entire earth is redeemed and no longer is there death. Do you remember right before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, what he said to Martha? What an incredible passage. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. We confront trials, disappointment, sickness, and indeed death. And yet we're comforted, for we know from these two episodes this morning, we do not walk alone, that Jesus' heart beats next to our heart. And that one day we will enter his presence fully restored to enjoy him.
forever. When I was at Talbot Theological Seminary, I worked as a, or was, had the privilege to be a youth pastor at a church in Burbank. It was a high school group. And one evening I got a call. It was a young man that was in my group. It's about 11 o'clock at night. He said, uh, I'm at the hospital. I'm in the waiting room. My sister was babysitting. My younger sister was babysitting, and she was found unconscious. Just at that moment, the doctor walked in. And he said, wait a minute. And the doctor explained to the family waiting in the waiting room that something serious had gone wrong in the brain of little Kathy. It didn't look good. After the doctor explained this and left, the young man's voice cracked and he said, can you come? Can you come to the hospital? And I said, yeah. Fifteen minutes after I arrived at the hospital, the little girl passed away. I decided to go with the family to their house to be some comfort. I'll tell you, I, I've never felt more inadequate in my entire life. What do you say? What do you do? But I thought just being there hopefully is some encouragement. The family is made up of four boys and one girl, and they just lost the girl. Three of the sons were at the hospital and knew that they had lost their sister. But the younger elementary school boy was not at the hospital, and he did not know the news. And I sat in the living room on the other side of the living room in a chair, and the little boy was on the couch, and Mom walked in, tears coming down her eyes, and rightfully so. Here I am, a young seminary student, watching this take place. And the mom sat down, and she said to her little boy, God has given wonderful Kathy to us for 13 wonderful years and loves her so much, he took her home. And as I listened to that woman, I realized that in the midst of the greatest sorrow a parent could ever experience, she had a sense of comfort, confidence, and trust in her Redeemer. She had the faith of a centurion, and she understood the compassion, even in the midst of hardship, of her Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we walk today with your beloved Son through Luke 7, we are in awe of his splendor and mercy. May the transforming knowledge about our Lord continue to grow so our faith may be strong in the midst of overwhelming difficulties because you care and because your heart knows our heart. In thy name we pray. Amen.